My name is Dr. Chris Jenkins, and I am the CEO of the Orient Society and the host of the Snake Talk Podcast, the podcast where you learn about nature's most feared, maligned, and persecuted animals. I invite you to listen to this conversation, and maybe you'll find that what you perceive as fear is actually rooted in a deep fascination. Welcome to the Snake Talk Podcast. I am here with the philosophical hillbilly, Johnny Carroll, saying, and we're going to have a fascinating conversation today. We're going to talk about the disconnect between nature in general and snakes. And and when I say that, I really mean a perceived disconnect. And, And the idea or the goal here is to really get people to think about that there is not a disconnect. Snakes are part of nature too. And we see it from a whole lot of angles and we'll talk about a number of these, but I mean, you could take it from, you know, the herpetologist or or the the snake lover perspective. There are a lot of people in the world and, and some of you listening may be just this, that love snakes, but you love these snakes in a bubble. You love them just in a cage, and and snakes are a really important part of nature. And I think for people who are interested in snakes, that's a really important perspective and, and to understand that connection. Then you could take the other side, and, you know, I've, I've bumped into a lot of people who are, you know, really into nature, really into the environment, environmentalists, whatever, however they would call themselves, that then you mention snakes, and they actually have this very strong dislike. Um, or, or fear or hate of this one particular aspect of something much bigger that they like. Um, and then, you know, I'm also very active in the hunting and fishing world, and it can be fairly pervasive through, you know, with hunters and fishermen, a dislike and a fear of snakes. So anyways, I just want to uh, talk with Johnny today and have a little bit of a, a discussion uh, around this concept. And uh, he's he's the perfect guy to do that. So Welcome to the podcast, John. Thanks, Chris. Uh, thank you for having me on. No problem. This is a it's a pleasure to have you. So, I guess the first thing we'll start with is uh, why don't you just give kind of an introduction to yourself? Really, kind of what are you doing these days? Where are you living? What, what are you doing for a career? Uh, those types okay. Of things. Um, I'm a freelance writer, editor, and photographer occasionally, um, and I live right on the southern edge of the ozark mountains uh i actually live on the wrong side of the river for what i always thought was the ozarks but according to the to the forest service it's the ozarks um and uh i write about uh, environmental issues and i write about some hunting and fishing how to's um and then i write about people's connection to the land and to uh wildlife um, and often, actually, it does intersect quite a bit with rural culture as a whole. And I'm a product of rural culture. Uh, I don't think I've ever lived in a in a town bigger. I'm actually, I guess, the only time I lived in town when I was a kid and it had two thousand people in it. And right now, I live on a dirt road. I'm looking out the mountain right or out the window right now at one of the one of the mountains. Uh, 
with the national forest all around me. Um, so that's where a lot of my, my work's done. Um, and I, I actually didn't start writing until I was 40 years old. Uh, I'm 49 now. Uh, had all kinds of, yeah, I had all kinds of different careers. Uh, was in sales on small businesses. Actually had a hog farm for quite a while. Um, and then when I was 40, I decided to go back to school and do what I wanted to do. Uh, I actually went back to get a degree in biology. Uh, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd had, a, uh, I had some credits back when I was in my 20s. I'd you know gone to school and I had some credits and went back and was going to finish that degree up. I started writing and sold a couple articles and decided then actually that I, I kind of liked um, – I like the idea of learning about all kinds of different subjects or all kinds of different topics, I guess, within specific genres. Uh, and that's what writing afforded me. Uh, I could actually make a little money by learning about these things and, and putting them in the terms that other people could understand. Uh, so that's that was what led to where I am now. That's great. Well, I would. So first of all, did you grow up? In, in the Ozark region? I, did. I grew up where I live now. I'm, I'm about 30 minutes from where I grew up. Uh, I'm, I've never lived more than 30 minutes from that area. Uh, where, the best way to describe this geographically is uh, in the River Valley region of Arkansas, right where the Arkansas River bisects the Ozarks and Washtaws. Um, and my, my dad's family, actually both sides, I guess, we're from the Ozarks. My mom's from the Missouri Ozarks. That's where their side of the family's from. And my dad uh, is from Newton County, Arkansas, which I think is the heart of the Ozarks, one of the wildest counties in the state. Uh, it's almost all national forest. Um, and so I spent a lot of time in that area. And, and again, it's not far from where I actually grew up, probably 30 minutes. Uh, what what a uh, what an amazing part of the country to, to live in and call home. And, you know, so I'm curious, <clears throat> you know, you, you talked about where you're at today. How do you think that that rural uh, Ozark upbringing, uh, you know, how did that influence, uh, you know, where you are today? I mean, when you were a young child, did you have a lot of interactions with nature and wildlife? What was, what was your childhood like growing up? Uh, yeah, I was, I've always been fascinated by wildlife and <clears throat> I've all, I've always been fascinated by the more, um, you know, you've got these big charismatic animals. Of course, everybody loves deer and everybody thinks squirrels are cute and all that stuff. You know, we grew up hunting them. You know, that's, I grew up hunting squirrels. I still thought they were cute, but I like to eat them too. And I like to hunt them, but I was also really, really interested in the, uh, I guess the microfauna would be a better way to best way to say it. The little things. Uh, I remember, uh, some of my earliest memories catching crawdads in a creek and a ditch and, and, and also, you know, looking at all the other little uh, animals and fish that were down there, all the little invertebrates that I didn't know what they were and all the little fish that my dad always referred to as minners, you know, any, any fish that wasn't a bass or a catfish or, or a perch was a minner. Um, but watching all those things, catching them in nets and jars. And then also of course, all the herps, uh, frogs, turtles, lizards and snakes uh snakes were i was introduced to snakes by my grandfather my maternal grandfather who i'll call poppy 
And I actually wrote a story about it uh, that, that included this little, uh, well, the introduction was, was uh, full of conflict because my, my grandmother hated snakes. And um, my, my grandpa would always have, I rode the school bus to their house. And I think I was in the first grade. And I, I, he'd always have something in a jar when I get home, a lizard or a bug or a mouse or something, you know, he'd caught during the day and wanted me to see. And I got off the bus one day and he, he, he showed me the jar and, and there was a, a rose, rosy bellied snake, which I found out later was a worm snake many, many years later, um, that he had in the jar. And he told me when he showed it to me, he said, now your grandma does not want me to be showing this to you. And he said, don't talk about it. Don't talk about it when we go in the house. Don't talk about, it, you know, when we sit down and eat. You and me, and he, he actually took the snake out and put it in his hands. And this was the first time I'd ever seen anyone handle a snake in person, you know. But he, he told me, uh, you know, not not to be scared of it. It's not going to bite you. And he said, just handle it easy, you know. Be careful not to hurt it. Uh, and I was infatuated. Uh, and and I think part of the reason I wrote about it, part of the reason that it was really infatuating to me at the time was that it was almost forbidden. Uh, I grew up. In church and uh, you know snakes are what led to Eve eating an apple and giving it to Adam and and that's where I think that's where I actually a lot of my my grandmother's uh, why she didn't like snakes I think that's where a lot of that came from uh, but my grandpa didn't have he didn't he didn't think about it like that uh, I also thought it was curious even at that age that this was a man that I had seen uh, you know clean fish and uh, we, we ate fish, we ate squirrels, um, that he could think of animals in that almost strictly utilitarian way, and at the same time appreciate animals in a different way for their aesthetics. And I don't, I don't think he understood, you know, how they fit into an ecosystem or anything like that. But I think he, I, I, speculating, I think he thought they looked cool. And um, the, the, I, the way he explained them to me and the way he held it, I got that sense. Uh, so my life. Yeah, I think that's an important, uh, it, it's an important way to think about it, that snakes or any animal for that matter, you know, they have a whole, you know, variety of values. Like you mentioned utilitarian or aesthetic um, or, you know, uh, you know, a say you could have an intrinsic value or an ecological value, you know, all these animals have value and they can, they can be valuable in a lot of different ways. They don't have to only be say utilitarian uh, value or only an aesthetic value. So I think that's kind of a, a very, uh, an interesting way that your grandfather there. Looked yeah. At that. And that's counter to most uh, aspects of rural culture, which tends to view almost every animal in a utilitarian manner. I mean, you now how, how can this benefit me or how can this, uh, What's the opposite of benefit? How can this be bad for me? You know, is, is this a good animal or a bad animal? And and there are different degrees in that depending on what usage you have for the animal. And so, you know, probably that was probably one of the more formative events in my life. Uh, and I'm sure he had no idea at the time that it would lead to me, you know, writing about um, animals and, and being an advocate for whole ecosystems and and whether we, you know, learn about Leopold and what all he said about the cogs of an ecosystem and how they're important. And now he didn't know any of that stuff, but uh, that I would say that is direct, directly attributable to who I am today. Uh, and it, again, it, it is way different than most attitudes 
uh, in rural culture about animals. Yeah, that's it's fascinating. It sounds like we had kind of a similar initial connection to animals. You know, I was similar. You know, I was really interested in these large charismatic mammals, and I did like you grow up hunting and and fishing and. But I was always fascinated by the small microfauna, if you will. And I think what always kind of brought me towards things like insects or snakes or frogs was the like, they were just fascinating, the, the, the detail of, of the things that they did, of their ecology. And so um, that's kind of what, what brought me in there. So it sounds like your family was pretty influential. Your grandfather, obviously, really kind of supported this interest and had this interest and maybe it was one of the reasons uh, that, that, you know, this kind of grew in you. Um, but there was also some kind of pushback, both from your, you know, just the culture, the communities that you were growing in, just or growing up in. It wasn't part of that. And then you also had family members, as you mentioned, your grandmother, um, not mm -hmm. interested in snakes. So, you know, you, so you grew up in this rural area um, and you've always lived and stayed in this area, but you've had a variety of, of careers. Um, and you mentioned, uh, for example, hog farming. Um, I'm just curious, just real quickly. So how did you get into that? And, and do you think there was any anything about, you know, working on the land and, and being in agriculture that that kind of furthered some of these interests you have in, in nature? Um, I got into the hog farming because I was poor and I wanted land. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, it was a crazy way that I fell into it. I was only 26 years old uh, when I got it. And again, we I had no money and I had no credit. And, but I, I had had a relationship with one of the contractors in the area. I'd worked on some other farms and they knew who I was. And uh, they, we found a farm that was about to file bankruptcy. <laughs> And nobody else wanted it. And so somehow I got a loan and got a farm. Uh, now, this this farm actually did further my my thinking on on these environmental issues and ecosystem issues. And, and but it did it differently than what you might think. Uh, this was a, I mean, this is a contract farm and an industrial farm, if you, you know, if you will. It's a, it was with uh, Cargill pork and. And uh, I think I had 2,000 head hogs in, in one barn, and I raised them up to market weight. I got them at 60 pounds, raised them up 300 pounds. Um, and, you know, one of the reasons that I wanted the land was because of this connection I had to it through these animals. Uh, I wanted a place that, uh, you know, we had a daughter at the time, a young daughter. I wanted a place that she could uh, roam like I did when I was a kid. <clears throat> And, and she could experience uh, wildlife every day. We didn't have to drive her somewhere to do it, you know. Uh, and I wanted a place that I could hunt. And this place had a pond on it too, a place that I could fish. And, and it wasn't far from more public land that I wanted to go to. But um, when I got the farm, and I, probably, I guess, about two years into it, I started really having problems with the model um, with the, um, with the way the pigs were the life of a pig raised like that. Uh, I had a problem. I had no problem eating pork, but I had a problem with pig not living like a pig. 
with with uh, you know living on never never touching grass, uh, barely seeing sunlight. Uh, and I had a problem with uh, the way we were disposing of waste, which um, you know was good for growing hay on pretty poor soil, but was also high risk of causing nutrient overloads in some area waterways. Even though we took all the precautions we were supposed to, there was still a threat, and there was actually I think evidence that this happened, and I think it happens on on most. Uh, industrial farms, especially in, in areas of the Ozarks. Um, so again, probably in a way you weren't expecting, uh, that farm did, uh, further my, I guess, advocacy, uh, for ecosystems and for the environment. Um, actually this, in the, kind of ironically, <laughs> nature took me out of the farming business. Uh, we had a storm come up. <laughs> Um, I was actually in the deer stand when it blew up, but I, I crawled down because the wind was getting bad and uh, a storm blew it down, blew my barn down. And uh, I had an opportunity to build it back, go into more debt and build it back. And but at that time, I'd already again reached some conclusions uh, about what I thought was the right way uh, to treat the land and, and to treat animals. And uh, so I didn't want to do that. I had other options. And so I got out of it then. Uh, and, and since then, actually, I've been a pretty vocal <laughs> opponent of industrial farms uh, for precisely the reasons I mentioned. I'm still a meat eater. Um, I, try to, I try to kill most of what I eat. Uh, we live on venison, but we'll, we'll buy occasionally buy pork or beef from someone that I know has raised uh, those animals in a thoughtful, more thoughtful way. Uh, Probably not what you were expecting. <laughs> no, but it's it's fascinating. It's uh, interesting. I didn't think of the whole industrial. I pictured a more uh, kind of small rural, uh, not rural is the right word, but small kind of like say oh, grass-fed yeah. operation that you would be running, but I, I didn't realize it was this big industrial. So when did that storm, you mentioned you kind of made this big transition in your life not too long ago, about 10 years ago. Is that when uh, is that when you, you stopped farming was about 40 when the storm came through? Or no, is that, that happened way earlier. That happened. I think I was 30, 31. I don't, I'd had the farm. I said, I'd done it for a long time. I did, I did, I guess for four or five years. I can't remember exactly. Uh, seems like for years before then I was involved in farms. I was helping people or I'd leased a couple and worked them. Uh, but I guess it was four or five years is only the, the only amount of time. But, um, I think I was 31 and when I, when I got out of there, I got into sales and I, I did not know that I would be good at sales, but I was pretty good at sales. And um, that led to getting into other businesses. We owned a couple small businesses and had some rental property and stuff like that. And actually what led to uh, me going back to school was, <laughs> was the 2008 recession. <laughs> 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 um, I, I said I decided to go back to school, and I did. But my options were, I mean, how can I put this? And I'm okay talking about it. I don't have a problem. But um, the 2008 recession hit us pretty hard, and I found myself in a, in the unique position at age 40 of being able to to uh, redo my life, uh, so to speak. And so I decided I didn't want to do what I'd done before. Um, and I decided that I wanted to go to college 
And I remember going and meeting with um, one of the advisors and he asked me what I wanted to get out of it. And I said, well, I feel like I've spent my whole life chasing money. And I said, I want to make a difference now. And he said, he said, that sounds very idealistic. And I said, it is. But I said, I, I think I need to, want, need to do that now. And so that, that's what led to me doing what I'm doing now. Um, no regrets about any of it. Uh, and you, so you said you ended up getting a biology degree. So you weren't in like a, uh, you know, a journalism or a, uh, you know, let's say an English program or something like that. You, you went back to school to, to study animals and ecology. I, and I did, that. but I ended up changing my degree. I, I have a minor in biology. Um, so many credits oh, okay. earlier, and then I went back and took some more classes in biology, and I was going to follow that route, and that's when I started writing. And uh, I thought, uh, what I actually thought of is is that you know I think I could be more effective if if I do want to make a difference, I could be more effective with writing, and having these this uh, at least partial education though in the biological field would help me discuss a lot of the things that I wanted to write about with people who were scientists. Uh, you know, I, of course I wouldn't know as much as they did, but I at least have, I'd be starting off at least one rung up where there would be some concepts I think that they could throw at me that I would understand. Uh, it's actually worked out to be very beneficial. Uh, it's led, you know, I've written about uh, restoration of bob white quail habitat. Uh, I've written about uh, the restoration of black bears in Arkansas. Um, I've gone to to Florida and written about Florida Bay and the issues there with water and Okeechobee. I've been to Louisiana and written about uh, the disappearing marsh. And and so I would say that the classes I had and what little biology education I do have or biological sciences, ecology education I have has greatly benefited me uh, in, 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 in writing about those subjects. Uh, I feel like I'm starting to, uh, you know, I got a head start on other writers that would want to tackle stuff like this. Gotcha. And did you stay there in Arkansas for school did. or did you? you I went to out? the local school uh, at the time. It's, I was 40. They had two daughters. Uh, they were both, of course, in school. I think I think when I started, my, my oldest daughter had just started high school. Um, or maybe she was in junior high. But uh, anyway, so we didn't want to. Didn't want to move them, uh, and and uh, it's Arkansas Tech University. That's where I graduated, and that's where I'd actually gone when I was younger. Uh, it's a good school, uh, a good school for actually one of the strongest schools in the nation for wildlife biology. Uh, so that was one, uh, you know, a big plus for why I started back. Uh, but once I got involved in the school, uh, their journalism department's really strong too. Um, yeah, a good friend of mine who's uh, you know has a fairly high level position with the Forest Service. Uh, you know, he grew up in Arkansas there and, and uh, went to yeah. the same school. It's it's known across yeah, the nation is one of the top for wildlife biology. It's one of the top schools. They rarely eat with yeah, small. It's, it's good school, yeah, sure. Yeah. Well, you talked a little bit about, uh, or at least mentioned some of the places and topics that, that you've written on over the last uh, 10 years. I'm curious, first of all, what was what was that initial piece, that first uh, writing piece that you ended up getting published? Um, and, and how did that how did that make you feel relative to, you know, potential for a career in that? The, the first piece I had published, of course, like 
Manning Rider starting out. I didn't get paid for. <laughs> it, was, uh, it was in the local newspaper. And uh, I really like writing essays. I like doing journalism too. You know, I like I like digging and, and getting the, like the, the stuff I just told you I, I traveled and wrote about. I enjoyed that. But I like writing essays that, that uh, maybe talk about a more uh, intimate relationship with land and, and animals than, than journalism will allow. Uh, and I had written an essay about Chuck Will's widows, which most people don't know the difference between a Chuck Will's widow and a whippoorwill. Uh, but, but there's a difference. And um, I wrote it uh, from uh, a lot of it was based on my memories as a kid. That's like the signature song of spring evenings. Uh, you know, got the windows open and the cool spring air is coming in while you're trying to go to bed. And there's Chuck Will's widow on the ridge singing. And, and so that figured heavily into it. And they, they wanted, of course, I knew the editor. I'd grown up with their kids, and uh, they published it. And then I had written a story about deer hunting. And actually, it was an essay, too. It was just a, 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 a talking about a, a young man getting into deer hunting and, and lessons he learned and stuff like that. And I sold it to a little magazine in Missouri. And I was shocked that they bought it, that they paid. I actually got paid money to write something. And uh, I remember emailing the editor and, you know, after he, he said, yeah, we'll buy it. And, and uh, I said, I said, Hey, I said, do you think I can do this? And, and uh, he said, yeah, he said, you can do this. And, and that was, that was it. I don't want to say that was it. That was what, that was started the snowball probably. That's when I decided to change my major after I sold one article. <laughs> And has it been, is it been, um, I mean, is it a way, is it a career path being a freelance writer? I mean, obviously, you know, different people have different levels of success, but has it been successful for you as a way to, you know, kind of maintain a living and support a, a family or, or um, have you had to do other things along uh, the way? Well, I'm very blessed to have, one of my one of my freelance gigs, I'm an editor for a small magazine here local, and that's kind of like the cornerstone of my, of my income. And then uh, that allows me to to you know write for. No, I won't say anybody that'll buy my my stuff because I don't do that. But I can write for for several publications. Um, so I mean, you got to be. You know, when I first started doing this, I would seek out all these freelance writers or all these writers, and you know, how do you make a living out doing this and and most of them would tell me, you know, if you need you need to get on staff somewhere. Of course, that has all but evaporated anymore, uh, I think. Uh, and then others would tell me, you know, that you need to have a spouse with a good income. Are <laughs> 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 there regularly? Um, and um, then I did find a couple. Uh, one of them was another was a legendary Arkansas writer, Keith Sutton, and he told me, you know, he said if you can find a a, a a gig, you know, where you're editing that they need your services, you know, every month, you know, to do this. And, you know, you're going to get paid this X amount of dollars every month. He said, that's a, that's a good foundation. And, and I was very fortunate to find that, uh, without really even looking for it. Uh, this, this little magazine and it was kind of, it was very unfortunate circumstances that led to it. But, uh, this little magazine that I edit now, I had written for the editor 
a few times and she became kind of like a, a mentor to me. Um, and then I guess I was in my junior year of college and she passed away and, um, there was no one else there to, to take the reins. Uh, and so it was kind of, you know, it was offered and also foisted, you know, I mean, it was, you know, here it is, you really need to take it. And, and I really wanted it. Uh, and so that's been, again, that's been a good, a good uh, foundation for what I do. I just wanted to take a break and uh, tell you guys, if you care about snakes, wildlife or wild places, and you like what you're hearing on this podcast, go to www. .orian.org now to make a difference. Um, part of me thinks that if I didn't have that freelance edit job, you know, that uh, editor job, that I could probably make make that difference up freelancing. And, and, and sometimes because of time and energy constraints. I, I'm not able to take assignments that I would, you know, for other publications. Um, so I want to, I want to be sure, and, you know, I'm, I'm very grateful to have that, that job as the editor. Again, that allows me to do a lot of other stuff. And I want to be sure to let everyone know that, you know, if you're thinking freelancing is tough. Um, it's one of the, I've had to hustle more in this job than any other job I've had. Uh, I do it because I love it. And, you know, if, if, if that editor job did dry up, I would I would find a way to keep making it work. But it took me uh, at least six years, maybe seven to get to the point where I felt confident that I could find work um, out there because uh, it is literally a jungle <laughs> and and everyone, everyone <laughs> is trying to get published. Uh, and, you know, what I what I've learned is uh, I think I have a little bit of talent. Um, and, but everybody's got talent. Talent is ubiquitous. Uh, that's, that's not what separates you. What separates you is professionalism and work ethic. Um, you know, I, I tell this to any young writer that, that asked me for any advice, you know, it doesn't matter how well you write. If you don't hit deadlines and word count, um, if you don't give the editor what they ask for, you're probably not gonna get another assignment. Um, so that that those are the keys, uh, and that's that's the same that in networking, this the basic. So free freelancing is a is a labor of love. It sounds like, and and um, something to be successful at, you've got to really pour you know your you know a lot into it, make it kind of a lifestyle, if you will. How um so how have you noticed a change? I know you've only been doing it for say a little over ten years, but. Uh, have you noticed a change uh, in, in that business over time, just kind of freelance writing in general? I'm assuming it's, you mentioned that these kind of, I'll call it like a brick and mortar type job, uh, you know, where you um, get kind of an in-house job writing. Those have gone away. Um, are there other changes that you've kind of noticed in the industry? Well, print, you know, <clears throat> Field and Stream and Outdoor Life just went out of print uh, a few months ago. Um those were like two of my bucket list publications. Fortunately, I did get in the very last issue of Outdoor Life. I had a I had an article published about squirrel hunting, um, but that's a big change. You know, digital is uh, 
everybody has a digital presence and more and more that's all the, that's the only presence they have. Uh, Of course we could go into a whole big thing about, you know, the economics and the model and, and why that is, but those, that's the biggest thing I think I've seen Uh, again. Well, that in, and then in combination with, you know, now there are more opportunities for more writers to get their voice heard because of the digital, uh, the world of, of media we live in. Um, there's a constant need for content. And um, so your I think your odds are probably higher of getting published. Uh, inversely, the pay has gone down. Um, and also the quality gets watered down. Uh, I, I don't think that, you know, there are pros and cons, more opportunity, but there's less, uh, less curating, uh, you know, good stuff and bad stuff. Now both are published. Not to say that there was never bad stuff published before, but there's, there's more opportunity for that now because there's a constant need for content. Um, so it's a changing industry. Yeah. Interesting. Well, let's. Um, I do want to shift gears and and start to talk a little bit more directly about nature and snakes in particular. And and um, I think a good way to kind of set the backdrop for that would be just to have you kind of just give us what what's your perspective on nature in general and how it's important, uh, you know, to our lives as people and. Um, you know, and maybe you can speak to that whole uh, connection to rural lifestyles because you're you're so um, linked um, to it. My attitude about nature, I go back to, I don't know, I don't know if you're familiar with Paul Shepard. Uh, you mm-hmm. are? I've okay. heard the name. I don't know if we're thinking of the same He's Paul a, Shepard. He was a, I can't remember exactly what his field was. I call him an anthropologist, but I don't think he was. I think he was in the biological sciences. But um, he, he wrote several books, and actually, and I was introduced to him by another writer, uh, David Peterson. But, but anyway, my attitude about nature and, and people's places in it is, is that I think for the most part, not for the most part, we absolutely do live in a bubble that is, uh, we have been since the first plant was domesticated. We've been building up this bubble and these boundaries between us and the natural world. And I think that the um, a lot of the ailments of not only our society, civilization, but also on a personal level are tied directly to that uh, separation. Because, you know, people, and it's, it's everywhere, you know, and I catch myself doing it. I'm going out in nature. Hell's bells, I'm, I'm part of nature. I'm, I'm never separated from nature. Um, but we've created this um, in our minds, and we've also done it, you know, as best we can physically. Uh, we, we try to separate ourselves from nature. And, and I think as we're seeing, you know, it's, it's detrimental and again, not not just on the large scale, uh, but personally, um, on, on on a very deep, intimate level, that, that lack of connection, that lack of um, 
acknowledgement that you're an animal. I mean, people don't, people won't, and I, I'm in the Bible Belt. Um, so it's maybe more prevalent here, but when I'm, when I say in conversation or I write, you know, that we're animals, people take offense to that. And we are, I mean, there's no getting around that. It didn't really matter what your theology is. Um, but this disconnect then, you know, has again, led to all these problems. It's also led to, um, you know, the, the labeling of the good and the bad animals as, as to whether or not they're beneficial to us in some manner. Um, and that's very, very relevant in in, util- or in uh, rural culture, which is by nature utilitarian, mostly because they're poor. Um, you know, having, you know, when you're just worried about eating, you didn't really worry about uh, all the other components of an ecosystem or, or, you know, whether this animal had any value other than in your belly. Um, so it's a, it's a product of, in, in rural culture, a product of socioeconomics. Um, go ahead. I was just going to say, so, you know, you talk about this bubble, how we've been building this, uh, maybe a thicker and thicker bubble between ourselves and, and nature. Um, how, how do you think snakes play in that? Obviously snakes are part of nature, but I do think the way that people interact with snakes um, is, is maybe somewhat unique or at least different than, than much of, of the different components of what we're calling nature. Um, well, and correct me if I'm wrong on this. You, you know, I'm sure you know more about this than I do because I'm not exactly sure. Did they determine that a fear of snakes is genetic or is it learned? Do you know? Um, there's uh, probably some combination thereof. There are a number of studies uh, that show that naive animals do have uh, naive primates even have, uh, you know, some fear of snakes. Naive meaning they've never interacted with them. So anyways, there's, uh, I, I would say that there's not a, a 100% it's all genetic or it's all uh, learned or behavioral. There's there's probably a combination thereof, and that probably varies a lot based on different animals and places. Okay, and that was my understanding too, that it was a combination or that, that there wasn't a clear path. But, but. I can, you know, and on that level, I get it. And I actually think that that probably that, you know, genetic, genetic fear that's been there since, since our ancestors were in trees and, you know, big snakes were probably prowling around looking for, looking for opportunities there. Um, I get that. And I think that that, that may actually have something to do with why I'm infatuated with them. That low charge excitement, you know, Mm -hmm. there's, we don't have bears and mountain lions around here, but we got a whole bunch of water moccasins, you know, cotton mouths, and and we have some, a lot of copperheads, and we have a few rattlesnakes. And to to come across, I get a charge out of seeing a venomous snake. Again, it's it's low, but I get a charge out of it. There's something very exciting about it, and it may be that it it you know represents potential death. I, I'm not sure. I also got a charge when I was in Yellowstone this summer and I knew there were grizzlies around. It was the same kind mm-hmm. of feeling. I wanted to see one, you know, I wanted to see it in specific circumstances, but, but I wanted to see. 
Um, <laughs> and I feel that way about the venomous snakes. Um, so I'm sure that plays into it, you know, on both sides causes, causes people to either love them or hate them. Um, and then culturally, of course, I, I mentioned this before, you know, and in the Bible belt, snakes are the devil, literally. And I think my grandma felt like that. Uh, I know people today that feel like that. Um, they, I know people that absolutely know better. They want to kill the you know, only good snakes, a dead snake. Um, and even, even trying to explain, you know, the, the benefits of a snake in an ecosystem, you know, what, what they do, you know, you can even break it down to, you know, they help control the rodent population, which is directly uh, linked to ticks, you know, tick infestations and disease. Um, it's like, it doesn't matter. It's a snake, you know? Um, and, and I actually, I think from that, that whole biblical thing is where you even get the whole stories about, you know, cotton mouth chasing people and all that crap. Uh, and I'm sure you've heard that several times. Uh, there are lots and lots of myths yeah. around uh, snakes. There's actually some interesting, uh, you know, in like, say, the Foxfire books, which yeah, you may have heard of, which, yeah. you know, originated here in the county where, where I live in Georgia. But there's a lot of interesting Appalachian kind of myths or folk stories about snakes and, and all these things that they do, which are, you know, many of them are just not biologically possible or, you know, so, so yeah, there's just a lot of lore and myth around snakes in general around the world. Well, and I think a lot of that, and uh, again, speaking to rural culture, they didn't, you know, they killed them when they saw them. So there wasn't really an opportunity to observe what the snake was actually doing. Uh, and, yeah. you know, I spent a lot of time waist deep in creeks around here in the summer. Fish for small mouths and, and spotted bass and, um, I don't, I, I don't think there's been a time that I've ever gone out that I've not encountered cotton mouse. And I have never, ever, I mean, I'm trying to think, I, you know, I've been wade fishing since I was at least 10, probably before then. I don't ever, ever remember feeling threatened, uh, by a cotton mouth. Almost invariably they were trying to leave i mean as soon as they've identified what i was if they could get away they were getting away and if they couldn't they froze um mm -hmm. i've been i've been within feet of them i actually had my nephew uh we were wade fishing he was he was probably only 11 or 12 and we were coming out at dusk which is the most perilous time uh that's you know when they're I'm, I'd say if I'm worried about stepping on a snake, it's at dusk on the creek. That's where it's going to happen. And he put his foot down right next to a cottonmouth. I mean, it, I can't, I think it touched it. And the snake never moved. Um, you know, and if I'd been with my, if been with my dad, and it, he wasn't necessarily a snake hater or scared of him, but he killed it just because it was too close to us. You know, and he thought he was protecting us. I could get that. Um, but the snake never moved. Um I've encountered, I'm going to tell you a really goofy, st stupid story. I shouldn't tell you. That. <laughs> I a, uh, since my grandpa introduced me to snakes, I would catch them. I mean, when I was young, 
my, my grandpa and my uncle him show me how to catch them, you know, and then not to get bit, even anonymous ones, you know, tell me where to, where to, how to catch them behind the head and where I wouldn't hurt them and I wouldn't get bit. And so I would, it was just a thing for me for catching snakes. Uh, my wife and I had not been married very long and I was trying to catch a water snake and she freaked out. She had not seen that side of me before. And, uh, <laughs> but all through my life, I've caught them, you know, and looked at them, turned loose, but I never caught a venomous snake. I never had the tools to do it. And I never wanted to chance it by hand. But um, my, my cousin and I, who was also a snake catcher, we were wade fishing and walking out of the creek one time and a big timber rattlesnake was stretched across the trail. And we're not good together. <laughs> Bad decisions. And, and he said, hey, he said, have you ever caught one of these? And I said, no, I have never caught a rattlesnake. And um, he said, well, we ought to. And I was like, we are... We were an hour and a half back from the main dirt road. I mean, we were a long ways up in the hills. And but we talked it out and, and we ended up catching a timber rattler by hand. And but through the whole experience, I'm going a long way around the barn here, but the snake I think buzzed twice. It never ever acted like it it wanted to get away. I actually felt bad afterward because I felt like we were just pestering it. Um but anyway, in, you know, my ancestors would never have given the snake the chance, would never have got to see how that snake would react. They'd have killed it on the spot. And I think that's probably a lot of it. It stems from, you know, ignorance, of course, but uh, it's, there, was, there was no quarter given to a snake. Yeah, and some of that's genetic and some of that's learned, as, as you mentioned. And, I mean, I see it every day, and I do a lot of these programs, not now, obviously, during COVID, but, you know, where we end up putting snakes into to people's hands. And, and uh, you know, these can be real transformative moments. And, you know, I've seen many, many times where you, you know, I'll take a snake and I'll put it in a child's hand, and they're so fascinating and, and their eyes kind of light up and then their parent immediately in the background is kind of like uh you know don't touch that thing you know or, or whatever it might be um and, and um, i think we may have talked about this in the past actually i think you've had similar experiences but but anyways it's a it's it's something that's passed on um and it is definitely something that that's learned uh how, how we interact with snakes so in the beginning, I mentioned kind of a few different scenarios, and I'd like to get, you know, your perspective on those. We talked about just kind of generally, you know, the negative perception people have. We've talked about, you know, maybe some of that's genetic linked back to, you know, the days when snakes were hunting the landscapes for, for primates, um, and that some of it's learned, you know, some of the examples we talked about with, with you know, kids handling snakes and their parents' response. Um, but, you know, it's always fascinated me is, is some of these more nuanced relationships. And uh, the first one, I, I guess we'll start with kind of the hunting community because both of us are um, very, you know, uh, are hunters and, and fishermen. And I have noticed that it is um, incredibly pervasive among the hunting community, this dislike of snakes and this idea of killing snakes and obviously this is is probably just linked to you know what we were talking about before how society generally feels about snakes however the difference from my perspective is that 
hunters, um, as much as anybody who recreates in nature, they, they, they spend so much time in these wild places. They're interacting uh, with these animals that generally they care about uh, an incredible amount. Um, and, and, and then to have this one type of animal that, that just uh, kind of wells up this hate and that many hunters, I would say, say the majority, um, you know, would oftentimes kill, especially if they're venomous. Uh, it, it just is always kind of blown my mind. I would have thought that a higher proportion of hunters, um, you know, would kind of put snakes in the same, uh, you know, kind of a world, if you will, as, as a robin. You know, you don't have hunters out in the woods and every time they see a robin, they just start, they have to kill it. So anyways, I'm just curious to get your perspective on kind of that, that sportsman, uh, you know, you've got this group that spends time in nature, but still has this, you know, real dislike of this animal. I mean, do you have any thoughts on um, that? One? I think like you said, most of that probably stems from the other cultural, from their cultural upbringing. Um, and there's probably a little bit that, you know, I don't think most people typically think of snakes as predators, though they are, but there's, you know, a lot of hunters that I know don't like any kind of predators. Uh, they, you know, don't, they don't like coyotes. They don't like, uh, I know some that don't like raptors. I mean, they, they blame the raptors for less quail, less uh, rabbits, and all this other stuff. So there's probably some of that as well. Um, and then there's, you know, but whew, <laughs> hunters, most hunters, and I think it's changing. I think it's changing. But most hunters in our generation, Gen X and older, aren't what the ones that I know aren't super informed about how ecosystems work and tend to be very species specific uh, as to what they care about. They don't really, you know, that's why there's a that's why there's a National Wild Turkey Federation and a quality deer management and a in a quail forever, in a child unlimited when, you know, probably at the base, everything's, everybody's working for the same thing, better habitat. Uh, you know, we're working for ecosystems that, that uh, function as, as closely, as close as they can to how they're supposed to. But you can't get hunters on board to support ecosystem balance. You can get them on board to want more turkeys or want more deer. Uh, and this is not in any way to disparage those organizations, but I understand why they're, you know, they've got a, a, uh, they've got a, a very uh, charismatic and very well, um, a very popular game animal as, as their, um, I don't know what the word would be, uh, but as their totem, <laughs> as their, as, <laughs> Everything's for this animal, and and that's that's where I get. So I, I'm I'm not I'm not being really impressed. You know I'm an oddball, and and uh, to 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 understand some of these things. I'm not saying that everyone else couldn't, of course, but most most of them just don't care. Um, I think you know. I quote Leopold a lot. He's one of my heroes. Um, he he pointed us in the right direction. Uh, with an understanding, you know, that that all of these individual species work together to make the ecosystem. And you can't have 
you really can't have quality habitat for deer, quail, turkeys unless you have all these other, you know, species working within that habitat. But most hunters don't see that. Um, and and again, you know, like you talked about, it's a visceral thing. Man, snakes are scaly and, you know, uh, ectothermic. They, uh, they're very, they're pretty alien. They're not like, um, they're not like deer that we can relate to maybe a little more easily. Yeah, no legs. No legs, no, you know, and vilified throughout all of Western culture. Um, so, you know, I think most of it is just the same root causes that we talked about already. And then I think that your bar <laughs> for hunters and anglers is probably too high. <laughs> <laughs> and, and boy, I may catch some flack for that, but I, I speak about it pretty openly when somebody asks in person. So that I do, and I'm disappointed. You know, and that's one of my, I, I feel like that's one of my jobs as, an, as a writer is to help, uh, you know, inform hunters and anglers to help maybe change some attitudes, um, to help, uh, help hunters and anglers form a mo- more holistic view um uh, of the places that they go to do what they do and I'm, I'm like you though i'm at a loss as to why they aren't already you know more engaged in that i mean i don't understand that i don't see how you can be i don't see how you can be a hunter and angler and not know this stuff but it's every yeah i mean i preach that every time if i do anything writing or do podcasts that are more hunting related i mean i preach that all the time i, I find understanding the woods around you and walking around being able to identify the trees it not only makes you a more effective hunter i believe because you just understand the connections which help inform what an animal might do but it just makes it a much richer experience you know you can just really enjoy uh you know it's nature in in so many angles whether it be identifying a tree or collecting an edible mushroom or you know so even if you don't get that harvest that animal you're trying to harvest it's, it's a much richer experience. and i think a lot of it too though is, is people you know um there is a i know that i got i've got one person that i know in particular who it wasn't that long ago we had a pretty good discussion about he, he killed a rattlesnake uh turkey hunting and it's illegal you know that's the first thing and secondly he was way up in the mountains you know and I, I said why did you kill it and he said well i about sat down on it and i said well you know that's not the snake's fault and i and i said and where <laughs> you were i said the odds of anyone else coming across or you running across at any other time were like nothing he said well i just he said i feel like it's almost like it was my duty kind of a thing to kill it to make sure that it didn't bite anybody else and yeah, I do think that's a pervasive. I, I think that is a perspective that a lot of people have because I preach the exact same thing. If there's a snake, you live in, uh, you know, in your backyard and you live in a situation, you know, say that's not in the woods, you know, I'm not saying kill it or, or you know, there's there are different ways to deal with it. But, you know, maybe have somebody come and translocate it. But that's there's a time to deal with a snake. And when you go out into nature in fairly remote areas and you're killing these animals, it's just there's no call for that, um, and 
And, uh, but people feel like that. They feel like they're, it's their duty. They're doing something for society. And I would argue they're doing exactly the opposite. They're, they're diminishing uh, society and other people's experiences. And they absolutely are. And it's, there's, there's parallels here. I mean, we go on a whole bunch of other stuff, you know, with, with grizzlies and other big predators and, and, um, you know, part of the, like I told you, I get a charge from seeing a venomous snake. I love seeing a venomous snake. Um, and it's exciting. And to know that they're there, and I'm not a thrill seeker. I'm pretty conservative when it comes to stuff. I want to play it safe almost all the time. But to know that there is an animal here that, that could hurt me, <laughs> you know, just adds to the experience. It, it gives electricity to it. Uh, it makes me more, I'm more aware. I'm more tuned in. I'm very much more aware of where my hands and feet are going. Um, and that enriches the experience as well. Um, and again, again, I've, I've not experienced it other than the little fly fishing in Yellowstone, but one of my favorite writers, David Peterson wrote about, you know, how different it felt to hunt in grizzly country as compared to places that didn't have grizzly bears. And it was, I think that it was the same kind of feelings that I was getting knowing, you know, that I, that I could come across a timber rattlesnake, uh, up here on the ridge, or I, I will run into it, some cotton mouths here on the Creek. Um, and you know, and I've countered that. I think I countered that with, with that friend that that killed the snake. You know, if if you don't want to be around a venomous snake, then don't go where they are. If, uh, and that's what I would tell anyone. If you're worried about getting bitten, then don't go out in the woods. And I say the same thing about bears. If you're worried about, you know, bear attack, then don't go where the bears are. Um, but that's, you know, we get, we get into the whole big thing about what, colonialism and all this other stuff yeah yeah well you know so i i do i think that's interesting kind of what you said about hunters and how i may be giving them too much credit and a a large number of hunters are very uh very narrowly focused say on a particular species or group of species because one of the other issues i mentioned was uh people who are really into snakes who don't have a connection to the broader, um, you know, ecosystem uh, in general. I don't think like that. And, and, you know, that, that can be in captivity uh, where, you know, a lot of people keep snakes here in the U S and around the world. And um, I think a good percentage of those people have absolutely no connection to that snake in the wild. It's just like a, it's a snake in a vacuum and it becomes in my mind it becomes like uh like you're collecting fine china in a cabinet you're never going to use it's it's just it becomes this rare jewel something you have to possess and um and don't get me wrong i keep snakes i'm not i'm not getting negative on, on people who keep snakes but i do think it's important for people to understand the connection of those animals to the wild. And then the other area we have is, is a group of people called field herpers. And, um, you know, I'm a field herper when it, when it comes to uh, vipers and rattlesnakes in particular. And these are people that are like birders. They're people who go out and recreate in their, by looking for reptiles and amphibians. And I've even seen it in that group, less so, but, you know, all they really care about is finding 
uh, this animal. They, they don't care about the ecosystem it's in unless some piece of knowledge helps them, you know, immediately, you know, catch an animal. And so, you know, great example, there are many of them, but when I'm out field herping with people looking for these animals in the wild, like, I really do not like going to say old piles of junk, old construction sites and just flipping all this stuff to find snakes. Yes, you find snakes there, the detectability is much higher, but for me, the experience is much less. I'd rather field herp in a relatively wild, natural setting looking for these animals. But, I, I, you know, I'm generalizing, but a lot of field herpers, uh, you know, have would prefer going to that junk pile because they have a higher chance of, of detecting a particular species. And it's just, <laughs> yeah, <there you> go. <laughs> it's just a thing. I mean, yeah, I get what you're saying. Yeah. It's just an, it's another form of that bubble. You're yeah. just, you know, you've, you've isolated one thing and you're building a bubble, you know, to everything else, but you're letting that piece into your life. Um, so it, it, it's interesting. One thing that's always perspective, uh, uh, perplexed me. I'd be curious to hear your take on it. I don't know if you've experienced this, but I've, I do to my job in, in, you know, working in conservation of reptiles and amphibians and also working on the hunter world, not working, but, um, you know, just being kind of active in the hunting world. I interact a lot with, I'll just call people who are generally interested in conservation. So, um, people who may and oftentimes are not, say, um, hunters or fishermen, um, but they're very into, say, land conservation or, or rare plants or, or you know, birding or whatever it might be. And I've encountered a surprising number of people that I'd put into that general category that, you know, just talk endlessly about how much they care about, you know, I don't know, say, rare ecosystems or rare wetlands or whatever it might be. But then you bring up a snake and, and their response to that snake is really not that much different than than most other people. So they've built this bubble that's really inclusive of nature in a lot of ways. But the snake still is on the outside. I was just curious. I don't know if you've experienced that in your travels, but if you had any thoughts on that, because it's definitely something I've noticed. Um, I don't know that I've experienced that. Uh, I don't, I can't think of any specific time, but it's, um, I mean, it still comes from a lack of knowledge. Um, you know, those are the same people that, uh, say we probably shouldn't have mosquitoes or ticks. And with, if you don't understand, Um, I mean, how do you how do you explain that to someone though? Unless they unless they're willing to really dive into the whole, you know, you got to understand the concept. You got to understand how ecosystems work. You got to understand that's not about what you find charismatic. That's that's not no. Um, and again, I think it comes down to a, a, a lack of knowledge. And it comes down to, you know, a lot of that is good intentions, but um, misguided. And and I again, I'm not, I don't have a lot of experience with it. I don't know if I've ever run in. I'm trying to think of a time. I can't think of any. 
Yeah. Well, let's let's. Uh, so we've talked a lot about snakes and and people, and and specifically how people view them as part of nature, or separate from nature, and, and in different situations. But and we, we've kind of had this theme uh, around a lot of our discussion. You know, we've used the word ecosystem a lot, like uh, th- this concept that that plants and animals and, and you know, geology and soil, all these things are connected um, in, in different ways. And those connections are important. While you don't have to be an expert on all of them, if you have, say, a certain charismatic animal, as, as you put it, that you're focused on, you know, that there's value in, in understanding at least somewhat these, these broader connections. So going forward, how do you think we as a society and we as individuals, you or, or me or, or any of our listeners, how do you think we can we can change some of this? What, what are some of the activities that, that we should be promoting or people should be uh, implementing to, to help this issue that we're talking about? Well, I, I definitely, and I've said this before, I think everyone should read a San County Almanac by Aldo Leopold. I mean, I I think if they made that required reading in school, which actually I don't, I don't understand how it can't be. If if you really think about it, Um, especially in an earth science class, uh, I don't understand how it can't be. Um, And I, I think I also think that there, there is a growing sense of these connections. And I think, you know, we've talked about generational stuff. We, uh, I believe that the 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 next, even the millennials and the Gen Zs, um, they have a better sense of that. They have a better sense of these circles and cir- you know, circles overlaying circles and more circles, and it's all connected and it's all big one big circle. They they've got a, a better sense of that, um, and I, I see actually see it, and I hear it, I hear it more. Uh, publicly spoken about with wildlife agencies. Um, when you talk to them about why they're doing uh, specific habitat enhancement, they'll tell you, no, it's it's for the habitat. It's not necessarily species specific. It will benefit all of these species because it benefits the ecosystem as a whole. I think there's, again, a growing, that that uh, philosophy, that, that, is, is growing that knowledge. And you, like you mentioned, we don't, you don't have to know exactly how everything works together. You just have to know that it all does work together. Um, and I think we got to keep doing what we're doing now. Uh, I'm by all accounts, if someone did not, you know, if someone didn't hear me talk and know me personally, they would, you know, just looking at me from the outside, I wear flannel and I camo cap and have a beard and, have a pretty thick draw, unless I try to control it. <clears throat> Drive a four by four, hunt and fish, and um, I. But I. But I know this stuff, and and I'm trying to reach the people in my demographic. I'm trying to reach these hunters and anglers that we come from the same place and have the same uh, backgrounds, and and I think that's probably what you know falls to all of us. Um, keep putting the word out there. And, you know, we talked about media earlier, you know, how it's changed. Well, that's actually to our benefit. There are so many channels now. 
there are so many ways to reach these people, um, to reach everyone else. And, and people that have a bigger platform, they need to be doing this. They need to be talking about this stuff. And, uh, and I keep beating this horse. I, d- I d- really don't understand why Aldo Leopold is not like the, um, the ideological leader of the hunting and fishing community. Why he's not on not the the icon that he should be, um, because um, I don't I don't see how you can be a hunter and angler and and truly truly be a hunter and angler that experiences those uh, those moments uh, in the wild and not be able to tie it all together with um, with his teachings. I think that's I think that's integral. I think that should, uh, if not again, if it's not part of school curriculum, it needs to be part of hunter education. Um, why is it not? You know, why why are we just okay with teaching folks, you know, uh, some basic safety and how to identify a legal buck, and not going into these deeper discussions that have huge ramifications? You know, for not only, you know, not only our our health and the planet's health, but also for the the financial health of these wildlife agencies. <laughs> I mean, you know, having exactly. informed hunters, uh, that that's going to make a big difference. And actually, I think that could also bring in even more hunters. Um, again, I think we keep doing what we're doing. I think there's more opportunity now, and and, I, and I'm optimistic that things are changing. Um, that's that's the only answers I've got. Great. Well, thank you, Johnny. But before we wrap up here, one quick question that I want to hear a snake story from you. But uh, I've always I've been curious since I've since I've you know been reading some of your work and heard you on a couple podcasts. Uh, how did you get the name the the philosophical hillbilly or, or is that something you came up with something somebody else gave you or what was the idea behind that? How, it was that a big, um, Hmm. How did that? It's, it's like almost everything. There's all, all these different little ties to it. Uh, but I think, I think the one that really, I've been thinking about a way to, I hate to say it, brand myself, but that's kind of what you, you got to do nowadays. And, and so, you know, part of the part of the reason I part of the way that I came up with it was again talking about how I look and how I talk uh you know against what I think and what I know and um a lot of people misconstrue and think that philosophical means I think I'm smart and that's that's not what it means philosophical just means I think a lot about stuff it doesn't mean that I'm right it just means that I'm I'm usually thinking pretty heavy about about different things uh so part of it came from that and then we had a had a friend of mine. We were we were actually trying to start up another publication, and uh, you know we were talking about what it wanted to, what we wanted it to be, and it was going to be a rural, you know, based on rural life, and and but we wanted it to be intelligent. And and he said, oh, he said, so it's going to be like eating beans and cornbread with play doh, right? <laughs> <laughs> I said, yeah, that's that's what I'm thinking. And so 
I believe the combination of that, of that thought from my friend and, uh, and you know, me thinking about how I look versus what I, how I think, I believe that's what led to it. And I don't remember, I don't remember the exact Eureka moment, but I think that's what it was. <laughs> Beans and cornbread with Plato. That may have to be the name of this episode. <laughs> <laughs> I love it either way. Uh, great. Well, so imagine that, uh, you know, I come out and, and make a visit and we're on, uh, we're sitting on the shore uh, of one of those small mouth streams there. We just spent kind of a split day, you know, catching some bass and uh, looking for cotton mouse and, and just had a great day. And, and, uh, and you know, you, you turn to us and say, hey, you know, that cotton mouth reminded me, let me tell you this snake story. And so I'd love to just hear one of your one of your best. Oh, man, uh, well, I've already told two, you know, catching the timber rattler. And then my grandpa showed me the snake. Those are probably the top two. Um, let me see. There's so many. There was a time when I was a teenager that I was fishing right about dark in a pond. And um, I had on my Nike Air Force high tops old pair of Nike Air Force high tops. And um, I was just, I think I was throwing a buzz bait. And it was getting close to dark, you know, and I wasn't really paying attention to where I was stepping. <clears throat> and I felt something under my shoe and it felt like I'd stepped on cable or rope or something, you know. I looked down and there's a snake that actually has his mouth and he's biting the top of my high top. And I freaked out. Again, somebody's not really scared of snakes when there's something trying to bite you, though. You know, it's a whole different thing. And so I, I kicked the snake into the, into the, um, I think your cattails there, kicked it into the cattails. And I ended up going back and checking on it, make sure it was okay. And it slid it off. It was fine. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm no, it was not a cottonmouth. It was a water snake that, and I don't know, if, I'm, no, you know, water snakes are pretty bitey, or the ones I've messed with are. And he was, yeah, I'd rather handle a cottonmouth. Yeah, than water yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they're usually pretty stinky too. Um, but uh, anyway, that was yeah. a good one. Um, and man, I've got so many. Well, that's great. We'll we'll leave it there. That you told uh, you told some great ones. Uh, Love the one about you and your grandfather. Just seemed very formative in in your upbringing. So. Um, yeah, well, I just well, wanted to thank you, Johnny, for, for coming on, and I appreciate it. Well, I want to say this Sorry. one thing, too. And the, the, the snakes, probably, and I'll, this is like a whole a collage, but anytime I encounter a, a cottonmouth in the creek and I'm waist deep, and, and they, they pause often just to consider me, to see what I am and what I'm doing, that's like a, that's some of the most incredible moments I have on the creek. And, and if I were, you know, I, I don't know, something about the way they look at you, uh, and especially a cottonmouth. I get why they have that, uh, you know, notoriety. They have a presence. And it's, it's just, uh, again, I'm, I'm not worried about them biting me, and I'm you know, sure not worried about, you know, like a big predator eating me. But they, they have a, a presence. And when you're in their element and you're right there, um, it's it's just exhilarating. And so if, if I were going to say, you know, if I had a, a good snake story or I don't know that I could con, you know condense it down into one story. But every time I encounter, and especially a big cottonmouth, 
in the creeks. It's it's like that. It doesn't matter if I catch a fish. That was worth it. Well said. Well said. Well, I appreciate you uh, taking the time and, and uh, having some conversation with me on this topic. It's one that fascinates me, and hopefully um, we, we can talk about it more, and maybe we can actually do it on the on the creek, uh, Creekside Campfire. Be perfect. I'd love to do that. Sounds good. And I also wanted to thank the audience and tell everybody to remember, snakes are animals too. And it's a privilege to see one in the wild.